Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. We have a sort of a strange situation here this week. Uh, for the second time in the row, one was an act of God, one was an act of stupidity. And I don't think I'm being too harsh with that. I think I'm directly quoting him. Uh, Ross Douthat could not make it here to Washington, D.C. to appear on the Remnant podcast. The first time was because of a snowstorm that really didn't materialize. And the second time was because, according to Ross's own version of events, he was at the airport on time, but vegging out like he was staring at a lava lamp in a 1970s dorm at the wrong gate as his plane took off. So um, I told him we would still be willing to do this, even though we had to do it by Skype, um, which is not ideal for audio purposes. It's not ideal for my own technological challenges, which are too boring to get into. But we are so desperate to talk about the state of the Catholic Church today that we agreed to do this. And part of the price, which Ross happily, as a good Catholic would, good guilty Catholic would, um, agreed that there would be some measure of mockery of his ineptitude for not actually being able to get here to Washington to do this in person. So uh, this is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. I am Jonah Goldberg, the host. If you didn't know that already, uh, you got bigger problems. And I want to thank Ross for being virtually here with me today. Ross, good to hear from you. Hey, Jonah. If anything, your introduction was too kind to me, I would say. Um, he can re-record it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate it, and I apologize to all of your listeners for the, um, hopefully at the very least, mediocre quality of this audio. And yeah, I was flying out of the Hartford Airport in Connecticut, which is a very nice airport to fly out of. And there are, as it turns out, two flights that leave that airport flying to Washington, D.C. at 9.25 a.m., one of them is JetBlue, and one of them is American. And I sat waiting at the American gate, um, and I wish that I could tell you that I didn't even know I was supposed to be on JetBlue, but the fact is that I had specifically bragged to my wife about how smart it was to take the JetBlue flight because it doesn't take you through gate 35X at Reagan National Airport, which is otherwise known as you know, the 17th level of Dante's 
Inferno. Um, so I was very pleased with myself, so pleased that I did not notice that I wasn't even at the JetBlue gate. Um, and oh, and the American flight was delayed. Uh, so I didn't had, had it not been delayed and they were leaving at exactly the same time. I would have learned when I went to check in and then I could have sprinted across the airport. But that 20 minute delay was enough to cost us the chance to hang out together. Um, so I'm really sorry. Yeah, no, it's a, it's unfortunate. I, I, I'm going to go with the story that the, the troubles of the church weighed so heavily upon you that worldly things like the correct gate were just uh, beyond your horizon. That's right. Um, a man, a man of faith like myself, has more pressing concerns than petty issues like which plane to be on or which gate to leave from. All right, so we're going to do uh, a good deal of uh, of, of, of popery on this podcast, and I, I just want to people could indulge me for just two seconds on this point. I will probably ask a number of questions based in ignorance because. As, as some might have surmised, I am not myself Catholic, but in my life, I'm well, at the a start of at the start of this conversation, you're not. But let's let's see where we end <laughs> up. <laughs> That's right. Uh, despair is a sin. But I am in my life awash in Catholics. Um, uh, I even married one. But most of uh, I would say a plurality of my closest friends are pretty serious Catholics. I work in a magazine that was never officially Catholic, but was sort of institutionally and culturally Catholic. In my last book, uh, Tyranny Clichés, I wax on in defense of the Catholic Church, on the Crusades, on the Inquisition, and all of these things at great length. And I consider the Catholic Church to be one of the great um, bulwarks of Western civilization um, and, 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 and a wonderful and mighty, I don't care about the mighty part, but a wonderful and... and uh, net benefit for all of humanity. And I remember when my dad was in the hospital not long before he died, it was right around the time the Pope died. And oh, no, I'm sorry, it was right around the time of uh, Pope Benedict's um, ascension. Is that the right word? Um, and all the pomp and circumstance was on the TV. And my dad was watching in his hotel room and he loved all of it. He was a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx. And I always remember he saying, him saying to me that, now, one of the things he loved about all of this stuff was that, as he put it, the Catholic Church served as sort of a rock in the river, in the rock of the river of history, the rock in the river of time. We needed more institutions that pushed back on those sort of relentless, secularizing trends of modernity. And as one of the things that, while he would never be a Catholic, um, he always admired and liked about the Church because it stood for some things outside of the present moment. It's one of the things that I've always liked about and admired about the Catholic Church as well. And that's sort of a big theme of your book, right, is that some of the truths of the Catholic... Oh, I, I, I bring all that up, one, to get it out there, but two, in case I cross some... Uh, I, I get some shibboleth wrong and I sound like I'm being derogatory to the Catholic Church, please ascribe it to um, ignorance rather than malevolence or, or ill will. Um, I just want to get that out up front, sort of my, my caveat. But this is a big theme of your book, right? Which is that there are certain uh, spiritual, uh, scriptural precepts that are independent of any time or place, and the Catholic Church is supposed to be fighting for those, and your concern is that Pope Francis may not be. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the Catholic Church, like all religious entities, lives in the world, right? And so it sort of exists in in this constant need to strike a balance between its aspiration to timelessness, its um, desire to be faithful to, uh, you know, the, the Gospels, the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and the need to live in 21st century realities. Um, and those pressures have been, you know, they've been significant forces and factors shaping the church ever since modernity got going. Um, they sort of gave rise to the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s and, you know, the translation, um, a really rewriting of the Mass, uh, taking it from Latin into the vernacular, um, uh, you know, the sort of shifts in how the church thinks about liberal democracy, how the church relates to Judaism and so on. Um, so it's not it's not a new thing for the church to consider changes and to get into debates about what those what form those changes should take. Um, but the Francis era has been really distinctive and very interesting, I think, from a journalistic perspective, maybe somewhat more troubling from a practicing Catholic perspective in sort of the combination of one having a pope pushing for changes sort of directly and fairly personally in ways that are in pretty clear tension with things that not just some past pope in 1472, but his immediate predecessors did and said. Um, and then also for the degree of pushback he's gotten. So you've had sort of open clashes or at least semi-open clashes between cardinals and cardinals and bishops and bishops and even to the point of sort of a small group of cardinals basically, you know, in a sort of polite way, directly challenging the Pope's orthodoxy. And that's a very unusual thing in Catholic history. You have to really go digging through, you know, the moth-eaten texts of Catholic history to find cases that are in any way analogous. And so it makes, you know, the, the book is, it's an argument um, in part because I am a conservative Catholic and therefore I've ended up as a kind of weird sort of critic of this pope. Um, but it's also just trying to tell a story about, you know, what the heck is going on in Catholicism right now and why, you know, why these fights are going on and why it's such a big deal for a pope to be very overtly, I think, um, although with a certain amount of deliberate ambiguity, trying to change the church. And so, I mean, the, and the essence of the changes that you think the, the Pope are making are basically of giving, giving leave to sort of uh, theological subsidiarity in a way that none other has, right? In the, in the way that something can be considered holy writ on, in, in one country and just sort of loosey-goosey guidance in the, the next country over. That's where he sort of ended up um, for tactical reasons, I think. I mean, this, basically, this, the very specific point that um, the Pope decided to push on from very early in his pontificate was the Church's rule that says that people who are divorced and remarried and who haven't obtained an annulment saying that their first marriage was invalid, so therefore um, they're still considered by the church to be married to their first spouse, and so their second marriage is adulterous. People in that uh, situation, um, he wants a path, basically, for them to receive communion again. And so th that was sort of the specific point that 
ended up being fought over in Rome and, you know, and fought over between bishops at these two gatherings of bishops called synods on the family. And at the end of that fight, the Pope was sort of defeated in certain ways, um, in certain ways, not surprisingly, because, of course, he was dealing with a church full of bishops and cardinals who had been appointed by his more conservative predecessors. But he was also defeated, I think, for the larger reason that you know the the pope's the, the pope's authority depends on the idea that he despite all his sort of near near monarchical powers within the church he's not actually allowed to change anything right and he's supposed to his his job is to sort of maintain what catholics call the deposit of faith and sort of carry it forward and pass it on to the next generation of catholics and so it's a very fraught and dangerous thing for a pope to sort of attempt to be the big actor making a change um, because it threatens to basically undercut the very basis of his authority. And so for all of these reasons, the pope was sort of balked in this. And what he fell back on was issuing a kind of ambiguous permission slip, basically, that lets, as, as you say, lets sort of lets there be a kind of variation in what the church says about marriage from country to country, diocese to diocese, and so on, depending on what the local bishop thinks, depending on what the national bishops conference thinks, and so forth. And this is a very distinctive thing, a very unusual thing, again, in Catholic history, this kind of move, because the church is, of course, sprawling and decentralized in all kinds of ways. Um, but the, the theory of Catholicism, the point of having the papacy, has always been that at the center there is sort of clear doctrinal teaching, even if on the ground, you know, it's not being put into effect in quite the same way in San Francisco as it is in Nairobi and so on. And so for the for that central authority to essentially give permission to local churches to not only sort of do things differently, but to teach differently is a real shift towards you know, something that looks a little bit more like what the Anglican communion has tried to do for many years, essentially a model of sort of organized Christianity where you're accepting that you're going to have a lot of different theologies sort of jostling together and competing with one another, and you don't have a kind of authoritative central voice on this question. And I, I should also say, I mean, the, the debate about divorce and remarriage and so on it often seems like, as often in these debates, a pretty narrow and technical question where you're parsing the distinction between an annulment and a divorce and what counts as a valid marriage and so on. And, and in certain ways it is. Um, but the, the move that Francis has ended up making, this creating this sort of distinction between what church doctrine teaches and what you can sort of do on the ground extends pretty obviously to the whole range of contested issues where the church um, and its sort of mor morals and ethics are in tension with the way we all live now. Um, it extends to, you know, everything from um, contraception and masturbation to same-sex marriage and euthanasia. I mean, if you, you know, if you make the long list of um, sort of sex issues, bedroom issues, bioethical issues, and so on, if the Pope's strategy succeeds, and if conservatives like, I guess, me ultimately sort of lose the battle, then the church will have brought it, to, it will have created a kind of truce with post-sexual revolution culture in ways that lots of people have assumed was just impossible. So it's a very, very bold move, even if it's wrapped in subtlety and ambiguity and so on. So I got a couple follow-up questions here. So... One of the things I enjoy immensely, because I have so little to contribute, but I love listening to people talk about it, 
is listening to uh, Catholic gossip. And as you can imagine, <laughs> in my world, uh, between I mean, between just National Review world, but also my my greater you know, an Arthur Brooks here at AI, and you know I have you know Ramesh Panuru is around the corner from me. I got all of these you know hardcore Catholics who out of out of a love for the church, but also out of a natural human desire to gossip, just gossip a lot. And I'm not attributing any <laughs> single thing to anybody, but. One of the things I and hopefully hear, they're I, all in the confessional immediately after. <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess that's a sin. I, I don't know. Um, gossip, but gossip is it's on the list. It's a long it's, list. You know, we've got a long list. So, like Father Guido Sarducci would say, you have to give up fourteen fifty for for gossiping. That's tough. Um, but um, uh, one of the things I often hear, and this is one of these things where I'm, I don't want to offend anybody, but one of the things I often hear is that uh, that. Francis is not remotely an intellectual. Um, he is, um, he doesn't read. Uh, he is, you also hear often that he is manipulated by Jesuits and the people around him um, who like to let him, you know, he'll, he has a good five minutes in him, but they let him speak for 20. And he ends up wandering off and saying things that cause problems. Uh, you hear sometimes, you know, comparisons, uh, which I know I, I listened to your um, Isaac Jotner podcast, um, and you guys went went into the comparisons between him and Trump. Yep. Um, but there's a there's a sense in which uh, that which I thought was in some ways at odds with a lot of what you uh, what you write in the book is that you know one of my big critiques about Trump is there is no great plan, right? There isn't there right. isn't a fourth you know, and the degree chess going on. He wakes up in the morning and he says, how am I going to mess up the world today? <laughs> and um, isn't, isn't it possible that, that you're ascribing to Pope Francis uh, coherent intellectual theological arguments that are more plausibly derived from sort of just his own sentiment, his dislike for America, for or just all sorts, or just a general desire to sort of disrupt things and see how things shake out. I don't have an answer to this. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a good question. And in, in the book, I try and steer a little bit clear of sort of over-psychologized, over, overly psychoanalyzing the Pope. Um, it, you know, it's bad enough, presumptuous enough for a Catholic to criticize the Pope without also trying to sort of dig too deeply into how how his mind works. My sense of things is that, first of all, he's not an intellectual in the way that both John Paul II and Benedict XVI were intellectuals. Um, he's not a sort of systematic thinker in quite the same way. Um, he has some sort of theological prejudices and ideas and so on that inform his his views. But, you know, but he, he's not um, he, nobody, nobody would describe him, I think, including his admirers as a kind of heavyweight theologian on par with um, his immediate predecessor. At the same time, that's pretty normal in the church. Um, it's sort of unique to have one of the greatest Catholic theologians of the age as pope. Um, and in fact, popes are often chosen for diplomatic skill, pastoral skill, um, you know, political skill and so on down the down down that list. So I, I don't think it's sort of a, a sort of it, it, it's not necessarily a criticism of Francis as pope to say he's not the most sort of hyper intellectual theologian. And then in terms of sort of the question of intentionality, 
I think, you know, what he has in common with Trump is that he is a populist in spirit and temperament who is impatient with forms and strictures and the idea that, you know, we've always done it this way um, and so on. And he thinks, you know, he thinks that he's his task is to sort of shake up a hidebound institution, uh, you know, to to drain the swamp and make Catholicism great again, as it were albeit along, you know, a, a very different underlying vision from, from Trump himself. So there are, there are those similarities. Um, but I, I think it gives Francis too little credit to see him as sort of undisciplined and erratic in his public behavior and in the way that we're, I think it's reasonable to see Trump as being, you know, genuinely undisciplined and erratic and like who he starts tweeting against and so on. I don't know that Francis has sort of a sweeping, you know, 10-part, plan for liberalizing the church in certain ways. I think it may be more that he was open to certain particular things. And then when conservatives rallied against him, he became more hostile to conservatives and more susceptible to the arguments of liberals. Uh, So to, to the extent that there's sort of a systematic agenda, it probably is fairer to, to, you know, to ascribe it to some of the people who sort of formed his inner circle rather than to, to the Pope himself. But at the same time, you know, he's a smart guy. He's not, you know, he's not the master theologian of the age, but he's a smart guy. He, he's very aware of himself as a public figure. His sort of success, um, I think a very admirable su- success uh, as sort of in, in terms of sort of using the iconography of the papacy, you know, making these grand public gestures, these sort of humble, you know, these sort of acts of humility and embracing the poor and washing the feet and so on. All, all, none of that is sort of accidental. I think he has a very clear sense of sort of what he's doing as somebody who's sort of fulfilling the celebrity part of the papal role. Um, and then in terms of sort of these specific changes, I mean, look, he's, he there is a consistent pattern that's sort of independent of this even this this sort of this theological moral stuff around divorce and remarriage and and um all the sort of culture war issues he he knows he can't change church teaching but he wants to sort of open up debate and so again and again he seems to look for ways to do exactly that and so you know the example that we had just last week during holy week was he gave an interview to this Italian journalist, a sort of secular, atheistic, left-wing journalist named Eugenio... 93-year-old, yep, named Eugenio <laughs> Scalfari. Who doesn't um, in, which, in which he was, quote, who doesn't take notes, who, who just reconstructs the interviews, in which the Pope was quoted as saying, you know, basically, either there is no hell or hell is empty because the souls of the damned are annihilated and not left in eternal punishment. And I don't want to take you down like the long, the long, deep rabbit hole of sort of debates about the nature of hell in Catholicism. But suffice to say, I love that stuff. Well, right. I mean, if the Pope really said that, it's it's a heresy. Right. Right. It's you know, and and that would be true outside of Catholicism, too. There are, you know, there are lively debates among Protestants over what this thing, you know, this idea called annihilationism. And there are some serious people who've who've backed it, but it's generally considered by both Orthodox Protestants and Catholics to be a heresy. So that would be a big deal if the Pope really said that. But did the Pope really say that? Well, we don't know. And the Vatican immediately put out a statement that didn't deny that the Pope said it, uh, which they could have done. They just said these interviews don't reflect 
an accurate, you know, don't necessarily reflect an accurate transcription of the Pope's words. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. This is the fifth time that Francis has given one of these interviews to Scalfari. And in each case, he has said things, not uh, in one case, there was a similar line about hell. In another case, it was right after the divorce and remarriage debate had burned really hot in Rome. And he was quoted saying, well, eventually we'll have everybody come back to communion. Obviously, it just, you know, we're just taking a while to figure it out. Um, and then there were other sort of other sort of theologically radical seeming quotes in other interviews. And each time the same pantomime has played out where the Vatican sort of semi disavows the interview and nobody and the Pope's defenders will say, oh, he's just being nice to this old man. And this is part of his strategy of evangelization and so on. But look, I, I take the Pope seriously. Right. I mean, he wouldn't be doing this if he didn't again and again and again, if he didn't have some sort of strategic vision in mind. And so it's hard not to read all of these interviews as the Pope basically saying He's sort of winking to the world and saying, look, I know I'm the pope, so I can't change these things. But let's, you know, I, I want to signal to you that I'm interested in opening things up and and having a, having a debate on issues well beyond just the sort of, you know, neuralgic uh, sex and marriage debates. So I, I think uh, and, and the same thing with, you know, with sort of the intricacies of Vatican politics that I get into in the book a bit, the, the sort of way these synods on the family were run, the way the people in charge of them ran things, their attempts to, uh, you know, effectively manipulate them into a predetermined outcome, all of which is perfectly normal <laughs> in Vatican, you know, in, in, in Vatican um, internal machinations. But it's the kind of thing that, again, wouldn't happen if the people doing it weren't pretty sure that this was what the Pope wanted. So as as much as I'm I'm disinclined to say, oh, I know for sure what he wants and where he wants to take the church, I'm pretty sure that we shouldn't ascribe sort of the 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 radicalism of this pontificate to just sort of erratic behavior, undisciplined laziness, or sort of, you know, Trumpian Trumpian ridiculousness. Um, there's more of a strategic vision here at work than there is in the presidency of Donald Trump. Right, and I don't want to belabor the the Trump Francis thing, but I, I think you could say that your point is, is that it's it's the distinction between Trump and Trumpism, Francis and Francisism. Whatever Francis is going on in Francis's head, he represents he's sort of an avatar of this trend within the church. Right, that's sort of the point. And oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Fran Francis is. You know, for for li more liberal Catholics who lived, you know, very unhappily under the rule of John Paul II and Benedict the Sixteenth, Francis is the great hope. Um, and you know, and you have people who will say, "Oh, he's not going far enough, fast enough. The momentum of his reforms are stalling." I mean, you know, within the spectrum of liberal Catholics, you have the usual mix of apologists, you know, sort of thoughtful critics, people who are disappointed that he hasn't you know, completely drained the swamp and so on, you know, the sort of as there were let Reagan be Reagan people, there are presumably let Francis be Francis people. But yeah, he's he's an avatar for for a vision of the church that essentially, you know, for a vision of the church as something that evolves more radically and dramatically than official Catholic doctrine says that it can. Okay, I would much rather just because I'm interested in this stuff, dwell on the, um, the Stygian minutiae of annihilism 
but I, I, I take your point that maybe we should not get into questions of, of hell for we shouldn't belabor it. But so you're you hang on. I mean, lot. we can we can we can belabor it, man. I you know I mean the, I'm interested, <laughs> in it, right? I mean basically the just the well sorry go go did you have a so as a as a you know as a conservative uh, traditional secular conservative guy I, I I'm probably with you on the importance of marriage as a as a bedrock institution of civil society, as a matter of public policy question, as a matter of cultural politics about why, you know, breathing new life and strength into marriage is really important. I'm a big fan of Brad Wilcox and the work that he's done. But my question is, is that as a theological matter, why do you put, why do you invest so much in sort of these bedroom issues, marriage, sexuality, divorce, as a sort of defining of the church and its role in the world? I mean, there were rules about the Catholic Church has changed its rules about all sorts of things in the past, right? I mean, wh- why why is changing the rules about usury not you know a fatal or poisonous blow to the Catholic Church and to its theological <laughs> commitments? But right. but doing it for marriage is. I mean, I think I know what your answers are, but I mean, I think it's an important thing. To well, think. well, one, I mean, we could, you could get a, a a more traditionalist Catholic than I on here who would say, well, actually, changing the rule on usury was was a huge mistake. Um, you know, there's no, I mean, I think this is one of the dilemmas for conservative Catholics as opposed to traditionalists. And that's a distinction that sounds artificial, but is actually, I think, sort of increasingly important. Conservative Catholics have tended to think that the changes that the church made at the Second Vatican Council and some of the changes before that are all sort of good and wise and necessary things. And so that means that the conservatives then have to explain why those changes are acceptable, um, why the popes can go from denouncing liberalism to sort of embracing arguments for religious liberty, um, but they can't sort of make changes around these issues of sexual morality. Um, Whereas the traditionalists who would just say, no, the church has been making a lot of mistakes and actually the 19th century popes were right to to criticize liberalism for reasons that we're seeing play themselves out now. The traditionalists do have the more perfectly coherent case. Um, But let me me try and make the the conservative case, which is basically that you, you know, there's no perfect way to know what the church can and cannot change. But you want to look at issues in terms of sort of how close they are to the heart of Christianity. Um, and an issue like usury is something that's it's essentially sort of a natural law extrapolation from various Christian principles. It's not something that Jesus talks about. You don't have a lot of discussion of usury in the New Testament. Um, you know, a lot of it is borrowed from the Greeks. I mean, a lot of, of right. A lot of yeah. it is borrowed from the Greeks. And, you know, and it is, I, I don't want to downplay it too much. It was a real part of, you know, a sort of big part of medieval um, scholastic moral theorizing and so on. But it's not something I think that sort of necessarily bound up with what what I think is the most important thing for Catholicism to retain, which is in a way the radicalism of the New Testament. And there, you know, this is sort of the paradox of conservative Catholics is that we are conservatives, but we're conservative on a lot of these points in defense of ideas that when Jesus offered them, they were radical, right? They went beyond the sort of general you know, as you say, Brad Wilcoxian conservative view that marriage is a good thing and, you know, it's good for kids and so on um, to something 
uh, yeah, to something to something more radical to this idea that it not o- not only is marriage a good thing, but it is in fact really, really, truly indissoluble. And well, the difference and more than that, that sa- sorry, the difference between a, a difference between a contract and a sacrament and a sacrament, right? And right. you know the the idea that marriage was a sacrament that too developed sort of slowly in Catholic history. It wasn't declared a sacrament sort of officially until until later on, closer to the medieval period. But if you read the New Testament, you know, there are these moments when Jesus says things that alarm his followers. They don't just alarm the, the you know, the priests or Romans or any, anyone else who was sort of naturally alarmed by him. Um, and one of those moments is when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, which for Catholics sort of leads to the doctrine of transubstantiation, the slightly wacky idea that the bread and wine really do turn into Jesus's flesh and blood. And something similar happens when he's talking about sort of sex and marriage. You know, he says he says this thing about marriage being indissoluble, that a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, that what God has joined together, let no man separate. And his own disciples say, well, that's that's wild. If you know, if that's if that's true, then who would even want to get married? (laughs) And and his response to that actually then goes further. And he says, well, yeah, some people are supposed to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And which is, you know, I mean, it's an even more radical image. And out of that, Catholicism has taken the idea that one, that celibacy might be the highest vocation, higher even than marriage. And two, that sort of, yeah, that if you are married, if you sort of take the easy way out, you can only really get married once. And, you know, for me, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a Catholic convert. I converted as a teenager. So I'm in this sort of no man's land between adult converts and cradle Catholics. You know, my whole family converted. So it was sort of I wasn't doing it on my own. Um, but to the extent that I sort of was making a conscious choice for Catholicism, One of the things that's impressive about the church, you know, amid all its corruptions and intrigues and terrible crimes over the years, is that I think more than other Christian denominations, it has held on to these sort of these radical ideas about sort of, you know, the radicalism of its view of the Eucharist, the radicalism of its view of marriage. And that radicalism gets compromised. I mean, it gets, you know, the the whole process of annulments in the United States is already a sort of de facto compromise with sort of the fact that we live in a culture where lots of people get divorced. But my sense is that you can only push that compromise so far before you sort of empty out the things that are really close to the heart of the Christian message that Catholicism is supposed to be preserving. And and then also, it's also, you know, the things that are most challenged vary with the time and place. So right now, because of the sexual revolution, because of sort of the nature of cultural change, the church's teachings about sex, they're the flashpoints. They're the points where people expect the church to change, where people are angry at the church for not changing and so on. But if you went back to the Middle Ages, right, you know, the, the, church's, the, the church's teaching that made, made sort of cultural elites <laughs> sort of uncomfortable was the idea that, you know, that wanton violence was bad, that you shouldn't just run around chopping everybody's heads off and taking their wives and raping and pillaging and so on. And so the church spent all of this energy trying to build up, you know, the ideas of knighthood and chivalry and so on to try and effectively gentle and tame these barbarian chieftains who thought the radicalism of the New Testament about violence was, you know, was too too hard and crazy. So I think 
the reason, you know, the reason conservative Catholics focus on sex right now is because that's the issue. That's the part of of Catholic teaching that our society finds most offensive and ridiculous. But in a different age, it could be a different part. And then you'd want to be defending that and having that fight instead. So I'm going to break the break the fourth wall here a little bit and, and float a theory by you that just keeps popping in my head when I'm listening to you talk, that I make I make this argument in this book I got coming out later this month, that the essence of civilization and the Catholic Church in particular um, in their role in sort of advancing humanity over time has been the, has been fighting human nature. And my part of my argument is that Human nature is essentially corrupt, corrosive and corrupting to human institutions. And, you know, if you go back and you look at the original understanding of what corruption was throughout the history of the Catholic Church, medieval period, you go read the Oxford English Dictionary entry on it. It's, you know, it's not about bribery and graft. It's about sort of uh, entropy, the eternal right. return, you know, ashes to ashes, right? When a wound is corrupted, it means it's infected. Um, corruption is sort of being reclaimed back into the, the natural order of things. And there's all this stuff in, in, the, in the New Testament where, you know, they refer to being married to this world as being corrupted um, or corrupting and that you should care about the next world. And I'm not going to do my whole immunitize the eschaton thing, but one of the things that I, I hear in you a lot is that the problem with the secular age is, is that it's, you know, I know you like the word decadent. Decadent is just another version of corruption. And the, the problem with the secular age is that all authority is derived increasingly from within ourselves, that we find our, you know, that, that, that tr being true to yourself is more important in this age than being, say, true to God or true to a moral philosophy of any kind, um, that as long as you are authentic um, to your own nature and your own instincts and you listen to your own instincts and you don't. Uh, you know, the, the worst sin that you can have in, in the secular age is hypocrisy, right, of actually preaching something that you don't actually practice and violating your own authentic self. And it seems to me that the problem that the Catholic Church is facing is that it is asking people to be better than their actual human natures. Because in our human nature, you know, you, you want to have sex with a lot of different people, you know, and you indulge these so I've So I've heard, yes. <laughs> um, I've seen movies. And... Um, <laughs> Um, and it's, it seems to me that this is, this is a, this is going to be, unless there is a true religious awakening, right? This is going to be the defining problem, not just for the Catholic Church, but, but sort of all institutions and ideals that derive from something that asks you to step outside of what feels good or what feels right, right? And, you know, part of my argument is that, you know, romanticism it should be actually the romantic era never actually ended because what romanticism was was rebellion against the enlightenment against artificial imposition um against denying your own feeling and in many ways our society today is more romantic in that sense than any time before because there was still so much vestigial um you know stored capital of religion and piety embedded in our culture and now from pop culture on down, you know, you've written some good stuff about animism. It, this, there is this idea that uh, being, it's fine to be spiritual but not religious because spirituality is derived from your inward light, 
you know, the, as, as Hegel puts it, the, the, um, the lan- I think it's the lantern of the, your, your inner lantern of the self or something like that. And I don't see how, how, how does the Catholic Church or do conservatives generally compete against that in an age that is automatically and inherently suspicious of any appeal to transcendence? I mean, it's challenging, right? I, yeah, I, I think that that's I think that that's a reasonable way of looking at it. I, I think that the yearning of the modern age or the assumption of the modern age is that there is somewhere at the core of your being this sort of primordial harmony, and that if you sort of scrape away enough layers and get down to the core of yourself, you will find something that is authentic and true, and in fact potentially divine, right? This is, you know, it's it's essentially a sort of Gnostic, God-within kind of theology that doesn't deny the possibility of, of you know, of, of, of um, religious experience. It doesn't, um, it's not atheistic at, at all. It just assumes that there is sort of, there is this harmony between the desires of the self and um, the sort of spiritual architecture of the universe. And religious traditions that tend to emphasize disharmony, right? You know, traditions that say basically, yeah, that that there there could be this harmony, but it's basically impossible because of original sin, which is sort of the, the traditional Christian view of things. And that to the extent that you can escape from original sin, it requires an infusion of grace from outside, an act of God, um, rather than something you just find within yourself. You know, that that tradition does not fit easily with our own cultural assumptions. And in fact, you can see, you know, I've had a lot of these arguments with uh, more liberal-ish Catholics and what in the last few weeks and what I often hear them return to is this idea that, well, you know, they frame it in Catholic language. They'll say, well, I don't think you have enough faith, Ross, in the operation of the Holy Spirit sort of within the human soul. And so their their sense is basically just that, you know, it's 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 fine for the sort of process of discernment of, you know, when you should take communion and when your sex life is is, you know, moral and when it's not it's fine for that to become a primarily interior process because you can be confident that the Holy Spirit is at work internally if you're sincere and so on. And I, yeah, I, I guess I am, I am sort of a, a pessimist in the sense that I, I don't have that confidence. I don't see a lot in human history to suggest that sort of left to their own devices, you know, people cooperate effectively with the Holy Spirit and become more and more virtuous. I think the tendency is sort of more entropic in certain ways. But I think the challenge for for any kind of conservative vision right now is that, you know, you 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 only have a chance to sort of convince people that they're making a mistake when the system enters into crisis. And I think one of the underlying questions, and I think, you know, I've read part of your forthcoming book, and I think it sort of runs through your book a bit, and it runs through stuff that I'm supposed to be writing about the phenomenon of decadence is, you know, how sustainable is all of this, really? Right. Um, and that's a question I, I'm not sure of the answer uh, to that question. But my my skepticism about what Pope Francis is doing on a practical level is infused in part by my sense that, you know, the system isn't working all that well right now, right? It's not like you look at the West and you say, well, these guys have a model of sex and marriage and family that's working great. <laughs> and right, it's just right, right. time for 
Catholics to get with the program and recognize that, you know, sub-replacement fertility levels and declining marriage rates and, you know, old people dying alone in huge apartment complexes in Japan, that's just, you know, that's just the glorious future. So I'm, I, I think there's a lot, lot of evidence in our own society that provides sort of grist for Catholics specifically and conservatives generally to say, well, maybe there's a different way to think about these things. At the same time, we are very rich. We have been pretty stable, you know, and notwithstanding the election of Donald Trump and the populist eruptions in Europe and so on, I don't know that we're necessarily at a crisis point per se where, you know, sort of alternative worldviews can get a full hearing. Um, We might just be at a point where, you know, an institution like the Catholic Church would be well served to just be sort of patient, you know, don't. This is my boring prescription for the church is don't make sudden moves. You don't need to sort of retreat into a traditionalist ghetto immediately, but you also don't need to sort of attempt this kind of large scale truce that Pope Francis is trying. You can just wait a little longer. We've been running this post-sexual revolution experiment for 50 years. Let's let's just sort of see where it goes and sort of adapt our response to whatever comes next. Well, so this brings up, you know, it, there's a weird irony, right? One of the reasons why I have always liked the Catholic Church is, to paraphrase my favorite speech in Animal House, it has a long tradition of existence. Um, and and uh, uh, I actually wrote a column years ago about what was the most Burkean line in Animal House. And, and that, That's, that, was the that no, that is it. <laughs> and, um, and I am... Um, and I, I, you know, as a sort of a Hayekian, Burkean guy, I think there's a lot of embedded knowledge, and that is this sort of gets at my argument that I made for years that what the cat, what the Islamic world needs isn't uh, a Martin Luther, it's a Pope, right? Because the Catholic Church over millennia has learned when to bend, when to stand firm, when to compromise, when not to, and it does it gradually. And I think you're probably right. I mean, I'm I'm not in the minutiae on this, but I think you're probably right that this is one of these places where it shouldn't compromise. Because if you just look at what happens with all of these Protestant faiths that become too secular and too worldly, you know, the people who want to embrace religion actually want, want to, want to drink the, 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 the high proof. All stuff. the Kool-Aid, the straight. Right. Yeah. Well, the it's like why Kool-Aid. the Marine, the Marines are the one branch of the military that always have, you know, the best enlistment numbers, because once you've made that mental leap that you want to, live that kind of life you want to go to the one that's the most hardcore about it and that's sort of what is i think appealing about the catholic church to a lot of people you know it's like if if one day i were about to embrace jesus christ my sense is i wouldn't go and become an episcopalian but so but my but i guess my question part of my question is if they is there a argument for why this other than the sort of watering down of the scripture why this isn't one of these let me put it this way. What if, you know, in the past, as you point out in the book, you know, lots of, you know, lots of uh, dioceses, lots of countries had their own quirky, you know, interpretations and customs of Catholicism. The same way used to be true of Judaism, too. Um, and I, I think one of the things that's sad about what's happened in Judaism is it, it's become fairly homogenized as well. But is your basic problem that, you know, it, it's okay to have this flexibility and wink at some of this stuff so long as you don't articulated as a new principle and what if i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's okay but it's something that the church can sort of live with 
I think. Um, I mean, generally, you know, I, I think that the Catholic Church at its best is an incredibly variegated kind of diverse institution with, you know, tons of local customs and peculiar practices. And, you know, the the cults of the saints alone in Catholicism are sort of right. testaments to the unique weirdness of every different Catholic, you know, Catholic place. And then you have, you know, within the church sort of there's sort of the the mainstream official liturgy, but then you have sort of these weird, I, I shouldn't say weird, I mean, they're only weird from, from a Western sort of Latin Catholic perspective, these, um, you know, Eastern Rite Catholic churches, you know, the, the, under Benedict XVI, they brought back in some Anglicans with a sort of special Anglican Rite. So I, I think liturgical diversity, ritual diversity, all of that stuff is at its, you know, can be one of the glories of Catholicism. But sort of doctrinal unity and doctrinal continuity has always been the kind of the the sort of principle that holds all of that diversity together. And so to compromise it seems to me like a much to sort of compromise the principle as opposed to just accepting that the principle is being violated in different places is that's that's a big a big shift. And I also don't think it can last. I mean, part of you know, part of the fact is that the structure of the Catholic Church is not being changed by Francis, right? The powers of the papacy will remain the powers of the papacy, even if you tell the Germans they can teach one thing on marriage. And, you know, you tell um, the more conservative Archbishop of Philadelphia that he can teach the more conservative thing on marriage. The, the powers of the Pope don't go anywhere. So there isn't this sort of it, any decentralization is only a temporary measure. And all you're doing basically is making the it's making the ultimate civil war about who controls the center that much worse. So my my expectation is that this sort of this will sort of circle around that um, or sort of decentralize and then recentralize. And at a certain point that if you get real doctrinal diversity in the church, you will end up with a kind of contest for the center fought maybe in a conclave or probably in, you know, another council of the church like Vatican II that will be, you know, that much uglier because of the amount of decentralization that's been allowed to happen. Like, you can't just remake the church as the Anglican Communion. And even the Anglican Communion ran into this problem and wasn't able to hang together. Right. So a couple quick uh, on-point questions, then I have some uh, weirder questions. Uh, You often hear the argument that, you know, it's, I mean, as you point out in the book, I mean, the, 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 the most passionate voices other than a few American bishops for uh, doctrinal conservatism actually come from, from Africa. What is, is there a possibility that the, or what do you think of the possibility which you often hear that, you know, eventually just by force of demographics, the church will sort of be, you know, that the Africans will basically come riding to the rescue and that, you know, maybe we'll have a synod, you know, in, in the, right, 2084 the, in Nairobi, right? The Council of Kinshasa. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that there, it's, I mean, I, I feel like the weird dynamic in Catholicism is that it's hard to see how either side wins in purely secular terms. Like if you sort of wave away the the very important theological issues and you just sort of say, well, look at the correlation of forces in the church, um, because sort of liberal Catholicism has. You know, it's strongest in the wealthiest parts of the world um, and that and it's strongest right now at the very center of the church. And that gives it a certain 
institutional advantage that makes it hard to see how, you know, how it would be sort of practically dislodged. At the same time, if you look at sort of, you know, younger cohorts of priests in the church, if you look at countries where the church is growing rather than shrinking and so on, you could make the argument that that the future belongs to a more conservative Catholicism. But it's hard to sort of tell the story of how you go from, you know, lots of more conservative Catholics in Africa to a kind of, you know, a kind of takeover of takeover of Rome by conservative African bishops. I mean, it, it feels to me liberal Catholicism and conservative Catholicism are sort of, you know, they're the resistible force and the movable object, if you will. They're, <laughs> they're, they're both sort of forces that have certain strengths, but really have a lot of obvious weaknesses. <laughs> and so they're right. locked in this, this battle of sort of, of sort of weak, weak forces. I mean, I, I think under John Paul II, especially, there were a lot of conservatives who believed very strongly in this kind of almost biological solution to the divides within the church, that liberal Catholics would just have fewer kids, that more liberal Catholic countries and societies would decline, that there would be all this, you know, growth in various parts of the developing world, and that this would sort of provide the, you know, the sort of the troops, the the ground forces, the, you know, the armies for for John Paul II type conservatism. Uh, and I think one of the lessons of the Francis era is that while that wasn't completely wrong, there is, you know, a big difference between birth rates, depending on your theology and their, you know, mass attendance in sub-Saharan Africa is like seven times mass attendance in Germany or something. All that's true. At the same time, you know, there, this stuff doesn't happen automatically. Uh, like the appeal of liberal Catholicism, the desire to reconcile to reconcile your Catholic faith to, you know, the very understandable things that are just realities of modern life, that desire is very strong and it can be sort of reawakened by the right figure, the right Pope in this case. And there's no guarantee that as Africa gets richer and more modern in various ways that it won't look more like, you know, Spain or France or Germany does right now, right? There's nothing, there's no, there's no sort of certainty that, places that are conservative, more conservative in their theology today will necessarily be conservative in their theology tomorrow. So I, you know, I think relative to some other conservative Catholics, I I have a lot of uncertainty about how this plays out going forward. And I think, you know, as, as a conservative, you try and have a certain sort of supernatural confidence that however it works out, you know, the truth will be preserved, but just sort of trying to cover it as a secular journalist, which I also am, or at least a journalist for a secular newspaper, uh, it's it's very hard. You know, if you look at sort of the complexities of this one billion member church and the complexities of late modernity and so on, you can tell a lot of different stories, all of them very different about how this ends up shaking out and sort of which side wins and which side loses. So let's 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 stipulate that your worst case scenario for what this pope believes is true, right? That he wants to, um, he wants to take a sledgehammer to the rock in the river, right? And let all the pebbles go where they may. And so some places will have free divorce and other places will have, you know, maybe even gay marriage or female priests or whatever. What would be your answer if, if someone could demonstrate that to you, um, to the question, is this Pope Catholic? Um, I think I would say that's a very reductive question. 
That's what that's what we would, do here. I would try and I would try and dodge it as I as I'm to dodge it. No, I mean my, my general answer to the question is that of course the Pope is Catholic, and he has not, you know, he, in in the sort of the ambiguities he's he's introduced all kinds of ambiguities and permission slips into his public teaching, but he hasn't publicly and officially taught anything contrary to the Catholic faith, and as long as that's the case, there's no reason not to say, you know, the Pope is Catholic. And there are all of these sort of debates that you can find on strange corners of the, uh, let's say, the Francis critical Catholic internet about, you know, what could a Pope do that would make him lose uh, lose his office for heresy, right? I mean, there's no, you know, there's no formal mechanism uh, that exists for impeaching a Pope or, or anything like that. Um, but there are there were cardinals in the 14th and 15th century, among other times, who sort of speculated about this. And there is, you know, there is some raw material for for argument there. And of course, in the past, you know, I mean, the Catholic past is wild, right? I mean, you know, right. once during the, they they had this thing called the Cadaver Synod, where they had a pope who they thought had dabbled in heresy or you know done other bad things, and they literally dug up his body and put him on trial. So. You know, we're sort of accustomed to a certain regularity and a certain, you know, a, a sort of popes in the modern era. They like to present themselves as as rocks, uh, you know, to, to use both the sort of official Catholic language and your rock in the stream uh, metaphor. Um, but in the past, you've had you have had popes who have at least been accused credibly of sort of allowing heresies to flourish. And you've had popes who have been subsequently condemned by later councils and popes. So as extraordinary as that seems, it is possible. And so there are there are things that Francis could say or do if he wasn't prevented from saying or doing them by the operation of the Holy Spirit that I think on the basis of the Catholic past, you could reasonably argue that some future pope should condemn. Uh, but we aren't, well, but, we aren't, we aren't in that position yet. We're in this sort of twilight zone instead. Right. So when, uh, but forget a future pope. Uh, you know, when I asked my, um, my, my synod of, of papist friends about questions to ask you, one of the most common ones was, well, what should we do if Ross, if Ross's, you know, Worst case scenario uh, interpretation of Francis is correct. Should you know, if a Catholic, if a believing, observant Catholic believes that the position of the Church on marriage and 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 divorce and, and these other issues is the correct one, and that it is derived from Scripture, and the Pope goes another way, my understanding is that you're supposed to sort of trust the Holy Spirit and put your faith in the Pope that he's being properly guided or something along those lines, right? What do you do? What do you, what do you counsel other Catholics to do if he goes I mean, look, in the I've, direction I've that obviously, I've made a particularly, you might say, reckless choice. And I've, you know, I've started criticizing the Pope. And I've, there are Catholics who criticize him in more intemperate and sweeping ways than I do. But um, but from pretty early on in this process, uh, I, I guess I sort of decided that the appropriate thing to do um, was was to criticize and to try and sort of restrain through public criticism actions that would put what I think are important Catholic truths in doubt. So to the extent that your synod of Catholic friends includes people who sort of debate and argue in public, which I suspect it does, 
my view, which could be wrong, but you know, it's the it's the view I've followed to the point of writing a book and you know giving interviews and so on. My view is that is that lay Catholics have an obligation to speak out, um, and that there's the sort of alternative approach of kind of playing a kind of behind the scenes counselor role. Um, and sort of trying to, you know, sort of write around the issue where you'll sort of criticize more liberal cardinals or theologians, but you sort of won't criticize the Pope and so on. Um, I, I think I think we're we've we've reached a point where that runs the risk of sort of just giving the appearance of being in denial. And I don't think that's helpful. So, yeah. So for for journalists, um, people who would normally publicly comment on these issues, I think it is it is okay if you are respectful and you know and and take the possibility that you're wrong seriously it is not only okay but necessary to speak up and criticize for people who aren't journalists um I think you know the obligation is more limited uh I think you know your obligation is to if you have a family you know to raise your family and tell them what you think is the truth if you have this variation parish by parish diocese by diocese maybe you have an obligation to sort of seek out the parts of catholicism that you think haven't you know haven't sort of fallen prey to maybe possibly heretical ideas um you know, ultimately, the people who have the big responsibility are bishops. Mm-hmm. And there have, you know, and right now, the, you know, the most, most of the church's conservative bishops, I think, are sort of hoping that we stay in this twilight zone under Francis, and you get a new pope, and things sort of go back to normal. And we can just sort of take the more conservative interpretations of the ambiguity and, and go with them. And, you know, and you won't have to have the cadaver synod. <laughs> of 2045 or something to condemn Francis's heresies. And that might be right. At the same time, I think, you know, my, I have a certain disappointment in sort of bishops who I, I know for a fact share my concerns um, that they have sort of confined themselves to private communication and have not sort of spoken out explicitly. And the ones who have are usually retired figures. And again, I can understand why if you're not retired, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't want to get yourself in hot water with the Pope. But if you look at the history of Catholic controversies, right, like the, you know, there have been moments like in the fourth century AD when, you know, the, the Pope was basically kidnapped by uh, a heretical Roman emperor. And so you didn't have any kind of sort of papal teaching on this, you know, these sort of theological controversies. And a lot of bishops went one way and a lot of bishops went another. And the bishops that we remember are these guys like Athanasius and Hilary of Poitiers in France, who, you know, who basically made themselves really annoying (laughs) by publicly arguing for orthodoxy. So I think that I think, you know, I think we're at a point where in the journalistic world, lots of conservative Catholics have reached the point of being willing to sort of publicly say what I think is obvious. I think among bishops, there is a understandable but also disappointing caution. And I think they may just be wrong about this idea that you can go back to normal. I I think, you know, in in the end, the longer this pontificate goes on and, you know, God, God and the Holy Spirit only knows what the next pontificate will do. There may come a point where the conservative agenda has to include the idea of saying, look, we need a future council or a future pope to sort of explicitly say in the Francis era, these things were were gotten wrong. 
um, which again has happened in the Catholic past. There's no necessary reason it can't happen in the Catholic future. It's just a really uncomfortable thing for you know for bishops to contemplate. I I, I, I want to move to some weirder stuff in a second, but I, 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 since I brought it up and I know that there was the other thing everyone wanted me to ask you about was all of this China stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think you would have written if you had gotten another six months to address what's been going on there? Well, so what's going on, as far as we can tell, is that Francis um, and his cardinal secretary of state and others in the Vatican are trying to make a deal with the regime in Beijing, which does not recognize Rome's authority over the Chinese Catholic Church. And so China has for a long time had both an underground church loyal to Rome and an official patriotic Catholic Church as in the lingo of the communists that's where the bishops are appointed by the communists. So they're looking for a deal that basically says, we want you to you know, recognize our authority so these churches can be reuni- reunited and in return we'll give you a lot of veto power over bishops. And you know, there have been, this is not coming from a clear blue sky, The John Paul II and Benedict both worked very hard to sort of, you know, affect, sort of behind the scenes to kind of regularize some of these bishops appointed, or many of these bishops appointed by the Chinese government, so that, you know, you would have sort of tacit unity of the underground and official churches, even when they were disunited. And, I, and it's and it is, of course, been the case at many points in history that the church has allowed kings and other governments to have some kind of uh, power over the appointment of bishops uh, and obviously, you know, holy Roman yeah. emperors. So it's not it's not it's the China deal is different from this the moral theological stuff in that there are precedents for it. It's not like radically abnormal for the pope. But isn't the consensus do- in the church that those precedents are bad precedents? Well, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, there, there, are, there, there, there are precedents there, for all sorts of terrible a, things, right? There's a lot of debate about this, right? And again, there's sort of a liberal conservative split about, for instance, um, there was this period called Ostpolitik, where the church sort of allowed communist governments in Eastern Europe to sort of have some influence. You know, they, they sort of had a less oppositional posture and so on. And, you know, our friend George Weigel who the papal biographer has been a great critic of these efforts, but you also will have some Catholics who defend those efforts and say they were diplomatically necessary. So, uh, you know, and then of course there's the Reich's Concordat with, with Hitler's government that church is a little bit embarrassed about now, nowadays. Um, but some of the, the deals in the medieval period were just necessary, right? I mean, they were bad, but they were necessary. And so you could make the case that this is bad, but necessary. And it's better to have this union, this, this, to have this reunion even on Beijing's terms and to sort of hope to regain more explicit power over appointments later on. That said, there's nothing about the people making this deal or the context of the deal that inspires any kind of confidence. Uh, and in fact, it's happening during a time when the Chinese regime is ramping up persecution of all, all sort of non-official Christian churches. And you keep getting these sort of embarrassing moments where the church just seems desperate for a deal, so desperate that you'll have bishops saying things like, oh, you know, the, the, the regime in China is close to Catholic social teaching in many ways. And these sort of, you know, <laughs> absurd and embarrassing statements that I don't think are necessarily sincerely meant. I think they're just sort of, you know, they're, 
well, they're similar. This is where the similarity lies. There's a similarity in that, as with the attempt at truce with the sexual revolution, the Vatican under Francis just, it appears a little desperate to make deals. It's like, we, you know, we need this deal in the West with sort of, you know, the divorce revolution and everything else. And we need this deal in China with Beijing. And once we've made these deals, then evangelization can start again. But if you're making deals on bad terms, and in one case, compromising what I think are sort of essential teachings of the faith, and in the other case, compromising the church's moral witness against communism, things can go very badly. Right. Uh, and so I'm not a China expert. I feel less qualified to criticize the Pope on this than I do on some of the doctrinal stuff, not that I'm that qualified there either. But I don't think there's reason. I don't think the Vatican has given great reason for confidence that this deal is, you know, this deal that they think is necessary is actually going to be a good deal. All right. So we're not going to do punditry because we're going long. And, and but I, I invite you to come back next time you're in D.C. We'll do it. In, or if I'm in up in New York, we can do real. We can do a more rank punditry kind of thing or pop culture. Yeah, thing. let's but, let's do it. Let's we can we need there's so much beyond Catholicism that we could we could talk about. Um, and I'd love to but, come back when your book comes out and you're a little wrung out from <laughs> book promotion. And and we can talk, talk about we can talk about your book, too. That would be great. I would love that. But I have a couple questions that I have to get at, because, as yes. you know, these are longstanding thieves of mine. And we've talked about them on Twitter a bit and and even going back to the early days of the corner. And um, I actually referenced at least one of them with uh, Ben Sass in a podcast earlier this week. Let me, put, let, me, let me preface it this way. I think one of the things that's really funny about like Steve Bannon and some of these guys who, you know, how globalist has become this horrible term. You know, meanwhile, the Catholic Church is the er-globalist institution in the world, right? And, and one of the things I say is a sort of a, and I, I'm being a little glib, but I'm not a huge fan of the Westphalian system. I am a big fan of the, uh, the best aspects of the old uh, Habsburg Empire. And I kind of like the Knights of Malta and those guys. Right. As you know, I've been arguing for a very long time that the Pope needs ninjas, to put it in a little less glib way. What would be so terrible with the Catholic Church having its own peacekeepers uh, to go in and do literally <laughs> the Lord's work around the world? I'm not talking about toppling governments, but there are lots of places where... The Catholic Church, I, I'm pretty sure it's part of its mission is to feed the poor and the hungry, yep. right? To take care of those who are suffering. And what would be so terrible if instead of blue helmets from the secular UN, which is such an unbelievable, squalid institution in so many ways, what would be so terrible to have the Pope having armies again and doing do purely for doing good work? I mean, I, I don't have a problem with the Pope having armies again. <laughs> I, if you're looking for an yes. argument, I'm probably the wrong. I mean, I, I think the best the best argument against your idea is just that, you know, the if the UN is squalid and corrupt, but um, the Vatican uh, is just totally incompetent. And I, I don't think there's, you know, one of the things that Francis was originally elected to do, which he has basically abandoned in favor of um, all, you know, this exciting revolution, uh, was to sort of make the Vatican run like, you know, something resembling an effective government rather than this kind of, you know, backstabbing, incompetent Renaissance court. So my, my view is that sort of 
the Pope, the Pope having a peacekeeping force needs to wait until Rome is run in a slightly less Italianate 1642 style. Um, you know, you need, you need a little, you know, I mean, not to, not to be ethnically chauvinist, but you need maybe a little more Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of, you know, mentality at work at work in sort of the highest reaches of the church before I would be ready to sort of rearm the Knights of Malta uh, and send them and send them out into the field. But in principle, just send the, the Swiss guards outside the walls. Yeah, I mean, there's in, a lot, you know, in, well, that would run into, you know, that, I mean, the, the Italian government would not be that thrilled about having the Swiss guards in Italy sort of doing stuff. Um, but, no, but in, in general, I, I don't, I don't personally I mean, we're having lots of internal debates in Catholicism that we can get into another time about sort of, again, like how much of the church's compromise, you know, how much of the church's sort of abandonment of secular claims to secular authority was at all a good idea? You know, is it going to end badly and so on? Um, and so the people who are sort of to my right, the more traditionalist types would be all for your proposal. I mean, so that's mm -hmm. something you should be aware of is the sort of, you know, you'd be you'd be empowering empowering people who are, you know, have sort of more often sort of anti-small L liberal views than I do. But but no, I mean, look, the Vatican, the Vatican could have peacekeeping forces. The Vatican should have a space program. Like, you know, there was a time <laughs> when the Roman Catholic Church was the great, you know, it was the great patron of the arts and sciences. No, that's um, right. And, you know, the ultimate end, the ultimate end game for real Catholic revival has to involve going to Mars, you know, on a Vatican spaceship. But well, again, you joke, we, but you know, I mean, the, the reason then, why the cathedral, the spires of Catholic cathedrals, you know, were the tallest things in in medieval Europe, was because you were supposed the church was supposed to try to get as close to God as possible. Right, but it's, I don't know if Mars is closer to God. I mean, technically, you know, it's sort of uh, it's an un uncertain question. But but regardless, regardless, <laughs> I'm yes, yeah, I'm I'm no, I'm I'm in favor uh, in principle of a um a vatican that has a more expansive ambit of activity um, but i think the actual existing vatican struggles you know just to you know keep keep the very basic trains of catholicism running on time so we're a little ways away from from the great rearmament all right well i'm, I'm at least i got you in the column you know i'm in the i'm i'm in the fold jonah i'm i'm I, right. i'm on board in principle all right, well, Ross, the, the title of the book is, which I don't think I actually said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, is To Change the Church. I want to, like, I want to, again, divulge some things here in that um, one of the reasons why I gave Ross such free reign to talk and answer questions fully is that when we did a special episode of the Glot podcast where Ross and Kyle Smith joined the John Podorowicz and me, my wife came home furious because she said... We didn't let uh, Ross talk enough, and, and <laughs> I thought and I so, talked a lot on that podcast. I thought I was, well, I, I was always interrupting Pedoritz, which apparently I'm told that's what you need to do. That's you what do. The said. They said you have to interrupt John Pedoritz, and so I tried to. Um, John, um, John, John is on uh, autopilot uh, verbally um, a lot of the time on the podcast. He has a lot to say. He does. I mean, John is. Like I, I mean, I, I like what he has to say, but sometimes you have to interrupt. But anyway, I wanted it, you know, to sort of like, again, since I'm no expert on Catholicism and 
I, <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully the fair Jessica will not listen to this podcast and say, well, you, you never have to let him talk again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible. So anyway, I want to thank you, Ross. Thanks for coming. And uh, hopefully we'll do this in person next time. And we will um, uh, we will delve into um, all sorts of other matters. Absolutely. Uh, and I apologize again for my rank airport incompetence. It happens. It happens. And that's it for this episode of The Remnant. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.